about what's going on in student ministry. And so this morning we wanted to share that little tidbit about uh, student ministry and what happened this week there. And normally uh, when we talk about student ministry, it's Colin up here because he's our student pastor, which by the way, he's amazing. Can we just give Colin a round of applause? He hates this, but he works so hard and uh, the students just adore him. Uh, But this morning I really wanted to talk about student ministry from a parent perspective. Um, Most of you know when we moved here, it was uh, May 2020, so it was the middle of the pandemic. I come here with teenagers. They don't know anybody their own age, and so those first few months, it it was pretty rough, but they were able to get connected with Cullen, and Cullen got them plugged into student ministry, which at the time was just playing uh, Jackbox games on Zoom, (laughs) so you're meeting people on the screen, Um, but over time, they started to get to know people that way, and then uh, started to meet together again, and really start to to make some connections, um, both with other students, but also with adults. And so for me, it was really cool as a parent to start to see, um, you know, these kids that had been uh, kind of isolated and lonely start to make these connections that it's not like they jumped and it's like, oh, immediate best friends. But over time, I see this foundation that was being laid to what would now become their community. Again, both with other students and with adults. Those formed the foundation for those friendships. So our student ministry, I mean, you see this is the fun thing that we did this week. Uh, It may not have all of the bells and whistles that some of the, the bigger youth groups around town might have, but I can tell you something that happens there. These kids come and they make connections with other kids and they make connections with adults that are pointing them towards Jesus. And that's something that, that's pretty special. So if you have a middle school or high school student, if you are a middle school or high school student here today, we want to invite you to join in the fun with student ministry. But we also want to invite each of you adults to join in to what God is doing here now at Western Hills. And that's through both our own student ministry, but also our partnership with Young Life. Because guys, as we continue to look forward for more opportunities to connect these kids to each other and to connect these kids with Jesus, we can only do that. It's only possible if we have people like you who are willing to walk alongside this next generation. That's how we have those opportunities. 
And we don't know exactly what that's going to look like yet, but we know whatever it is, it's going to be a pretty fun ride because <laughs> that's the way that God works. And we hope that you'll join us. Um, my husband, he, uh, he has jumped into student ministry and has been um, leading since shortly after we got here. And for those of you who know him, know he's, he's just a big kid, so he's right, right where he belongs. We hope that you'll come alongside and join us there. So if you want more information for yourself or for your student, on your chair there is a connection card. And you can just put in the other line there on the connection card, put students, and we will reach out to you with some more information about getting yourself or your student connected. Well, this morning, as we finish up thinking about student ministry, we have a real treat. And one of our student ministry leaders, volunteers, Emily Davis, is going to come and she's going to pray over all of us and over student ministry. God, just thank you for student ministry and the connection that it's made for me um, as a leader. And I'm grateful for the leaders that come alongside each other and and guide these students as best we can to know you better. And I pray for those students that each one of them would feel that community and connection. And I pray that as they're going out into their schools or their communities, that they would see others who need you and invite them in. And that when those students come, that they would feel connected as well. I'm grateful for this opportunity to serve. And that's, yeah, amen. Thank you, Emily. Hey, if you're a guest with us today, this is the first time you're here, been new around for a while, we really want to know that you're here. So that same connection card I just mentioned that's on your chair, take a moment to fill that out, drop it in the kiosk, or better yet, take it down to the lobby and we have somebody waiting there for you with a special gift. Well, let's stand this morning and continue to worship.
Thank you for singing with us. You can have your seats. If I didn't know how long this message was, I'd make you sing that again. <laughs> so I don't know if that's good news or not for you. My, for them. You've already sat through it once. You sent through it again? Oh, you are? That's good, huh? It's a twofer. Um, well, hey, welcome. It's big trip number four. It's our last week talking about uh, my Israel trip. Amy's, I, I took Amy with me. Everybody's asked why Amy hasn't been up on stage with me during this session. I just said because um, she keeps winning the fights. So that's why she's not up here. Uh, anyway, uh, if you want to join the conversation, we'd love to have your questions. You can scan that QR code or text your questions. W Hill or West. You can read the signs. There you go. Do that. Shoot that in there. Uh, we are going to fly through Jerusalem. We ended our trip in Jerusalem. It was probably our favorite stop on the trip. Uh, Jerusalem sits on an elevated plateau above the Judean wilderness. This is why they have the songs of ascent because they ascend into Jerusalem. And so uh, it's a beautiful city. The city that we, the place where we spent the most time is called Old City. Old City is kind of a misnomer. Uh, go ahead and click to the next one. Uh, it kind of sits here uh, on the edge of the valley and there's a wall that surrounds it. And that's what that little white line is. That's the wall. The blue line is the temple mount uh, that is inside the city walls. Now the old city walls were built in the 1100s. So this is not the original old city. When they built the wall in the 1100s by the, with the Ottoman Empire, they did not include the original city of David, like where David's castle was in Hezekiah's tunnel. I don't know why, they just didn't. So anyway, trivia to not impress your friends. When you walk through the old city, this is what a typical street looks like. Um, and there are hundreds of these streets. They call them streets. It felt like hallways. However, if you walk these streets long enough and if you search long enough, you will eventually find your people. I am not making this up. I knelt in the middle of the street and went, I have found my people. Now the quest, the interesting thing about this store is I'm not sure anybody from Alabama can afford anything in this store. It's, it's really kind of high dollar. Anyway, uh, it, it was great. Uh, this guy's brother went to the University of Alabama. So that's why he established the store. So I just thought that was really cool. If you walk these streets enough, though, you eventually will spill into a plaza. And in that plaza is a church, and they've got multiple churches. Probably the church that was the most fascinating, that had the most impact on us, was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, this was where the Catholic uh, traditional site of where the crucifixion and burial of Jesus occurred. There are six different churches that share this space. Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, uh, Coptic, Ethiopian church, Roman Catholic. So there's six different ones. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody in there. And they all have their own little space inside this church. When you enter into the church, the first thing you see is what's called the stone of the anointing. Now, this is where they say that Jesus's body was prepared for burial. Now, we know for sure that this stone was not the stone that Jesus's body was prepared on because this stone was placed in the church in the 1100s. That did not keep people 
from kneeling and kissing the stone as if uh, it, was, it, was, so it was a really uh, an interesting uh, phenomenon to watch this. As you're standing looking at this stone of anointing, if you were to turn to your right, you would see this. Uh, this is a uh, kind of sectioned off portion of the church. This is called the Golgotha. This is where they believe the actual crucifixion took place behind this screen. Then inside this place, it is ornate. It is richly covered with gold and silver. Uh, it is a very reverent place. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the place. Now, we do have archaeological evidence that there were crucifixions in this place in the first century and that it was carried out by Rome. So there's a pretty good chance that this is where Jesus was crucified. But there's not like a plaque hanging up that says, on this day, Jesus was crucified, okay? And it doesn't have that. If you go back to the stone of anointing and you go to the left, there's a place called the edicule. The edicule is what is uh, seen as the tomb of Christ. It's just a small little building and they have a hole both in the roof and the roof of that edicule where light shines down into this tomb. It's a really cool place. Only two or three people can get in there at the same time and they kind of herd you through there. It was really quite fascinating. Also located in this building uh, along almost all the walls are these little marks right here. Uh, as crusades would come from the 1100s all the way up to the 1600s, uh, pilgrims would come to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and they would make their mark on the wall to, to, to signify that they had been there. Uh, it was a surreal experience. People kneeling, kissing rocks, praying, uh, just a lot of, of solemnness in this whole building. And as we were going through the building and all these different little nooks and crannies in it, uh, I, I, I was overwhelmed with a sense of grief. I was ambushed by grief because I just couldn't get out of my head the words of the angel that was sitting at the tomb that said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. There was so much emphasis in this place on what was, on what had happened, on Jesus had died here, Jesus was crucified here, Jesus' body was placed here. And the whole, I mean, and, and, and I don't want to make light of that, right? I mean, th those are things that happen, we believe these things happen, but he's not here. He's not here, like, like, it's like I wanted to do the news. Like, did you finish reading the story? Like, he, he rose again, and he's coming back. We, we, don't have to, we don't have to make a museum out of this. And, and, I, and I, I even took it so far as as we were walking out of the church, I thought to myself, is this a church or a museum? Like, is, is this a place that's on mission with Jesus? Like, do they, do they really... Do they really want to see people come to have a saving faith in Christ or is this just, or is this just a museum? Like, I mean, I was having that internal debate and as, you, as I left, this was my answer. So as you leave this place, this is the main entrance and exit. There's one way in, one way out. And I don't know if you can see this. Can you see the balcony where the ladder is? Do you see that ladder? That ladder has been up there since the 1500s. So in the 1500s, they hired someone to come and do some renovations on the church. And 
somehow the contractor left his ladder on the balcony. And what arose out of that is that, that these six denominations began arguing over whose fault it was that the ladder was left on the balcony. One denomination would remove the ladder. The other denomination went, no, you can't move our ladder. It's our ladder. And the other denomination says, well, then move the ladder. And it says, well, no, it's not our ladder. We're just saying, who should? This conflict got so intense that in 1757, they sat all six denominations down and they signed what is called the status quo agreement. The status quo agreement says that that ladder will remain in that space. And it rotates as to which denomination has to replace the ladder when the elements destroy said ladder. And when they replace the ladder, it has to be replaced with a ladder that looks exactly like that. And it rotates. They made an agreement. Not six people, six denominations. These are intelligent people that made this agreement. And there are millions of people who visit this church every year. Millions of people who visit this church. And the first thing they see is that ladder. And I'm just sitting there. And, I'm, and, and here's the thought that crossed my head. I was like, do they understand that millions of lost people are coming through this and, the, and they're asking the question, why are they arguing over a ladder? And then I got ambushed. The spirit does not fight fair, by the way. The spirit began to ask me, what ladders, what ladders are you American churches fighting over while millions of lost people walk by your door? Was, was not expecting that ambush. I wish I could tell you that the ambushes stopped, but they didn't. Uh, this week, I'm gonna give you a sneak peek. I'm gonna talk to you about the pool of Bethesda. We're gonna make a video, I'm gonna show it, but I'm not gonna talk about that right now. I wanna talk about when we visited the Temple Mount and the massive ambush that the Spirit got in on me on the Temple Mount. <clears throat> the Temple Mount sits in, uh, the, the, on this corner of Jerusalem. I think I've got an overhead shot. And you can see how close everything is. In the northwest corner here, you have the Roman garrison where uh, Roman soldiers who were assigned to Jerusalem, this is where they would stay. This has been where Jesus was more than likely taken. This is more than likely the courtyard that Peter was, was hiding in and trying to, to figure out what information he could get on Jesus when he denied him three times. It sits right there on the temple court, the temple mount. The temple mount is 38 acres big. You can see there where the western wall is located. And you can also see there uh, kind of where some temple ruins are located. Non-Muslims can only access the Temple Mount through the Western Wall Gate, and this is what that looks like. It is a wooden structure that is built on the side of the Western Wall. It's right there in the, uh, the right-hand side of that picture. And when you climb that, you go through a security checkpoint, and they tell you, they, they go through a metal detector, they don't want any weapons, anything. They have rules that you have to follow if you're going to go up on the Temple Mount. You cannot have any uh, outward symbols of any other religious uh, belief system. So no crosses, no Star of David's, nothing. You can't take a Bible. You can't take the scriptures. You're not allowed to pray. 
You're not allowed to have any public display of affection. So you can't hold hands with your spouse. You can't do any of that on the Temple Mount. And once you go through the Israeli checkpoint, you have to go through the Muslim checkpoint. And this is very fascinating. You see, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Temple Mount was under Palestinian rule. And this was true up until 1967. And in 1967, the Six-Day War, Israel took control of the Temple Mount. And there was a lot of fear as to what was going to happen. Would they destroy the Church of the Rock? Would they destroy the mosque that's on top of the Temple Mount? And in 1967, and every prime minister after that, the Israeli government has made an agreement with the Muslim Palestinian nation that says you can keep your mosque, you can keep the Temple Mount, you can operate on the Temple Mount, and we are going to be responsible for the peace of the Temple Mount. We will make sure that it is a place of peace. And this, of course, has been stretched, and, and there's been a lot of tension in this, because you'll have radical people on both sides that, that don't want any Muslims on it, and then you have those that believe that, no, it needs to go back into the hands of the Israelis. Well, as you go on top, <clears throat> you can see this right here. And uh, this was a great shot. I think this is of Amy uh, sitting, and I've got a picture of her. On the outskirts of this, the Israeli Defense Force Army will sit around, and they're controlled the peace of the Temple Mount. Now, you might ask, well, Grant, what, what's the big deal? I mean, why, why do they have this arrangement? Well, by and large... The arrangement is made this way is that for most Jews, they don't want the Temple Mount back because they're not sure where the temple was built. And they don't want to accidentally walk over the Holy of Holies. They don't want to accidentally call down the wrath of God because, because they, 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 didn't, they didn't honor where the temple was built. So for most Jews, that Western Wall is the holiest place that they can be. And they'll go to that Western Walls that's separated on a man's side and a woman's side, and that's where they'll pray because they don't want to, they don't want to do anything that that, that might uh, that might make them unclean by walking in a place where the temple used to be. But the Temple Mount is seen as sacred by t- by two groups, right? The Jews believe that it's sacred because the first temple. This is where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, but he wasn't. This is where the first temple was built by Solomon, and then it was destroyed in 587. This is where the, the, the second temple was built with King Herod, and it was destroyed in 70 AD. So, so it's a holy place for Jews, but it is also a holy place for Muslims, because this is where they believe Muhammad ascended into heaven. Both groups claim that this land belongs to them. It's incredibly complicated, incredibly combative kind of of place. And it was on this spot, and it was in this spot that we had a conversation that changed everything. Our tour guide was a Jewish Christ follower with the name by the name of Mickey. Our bus driver was a Palestinian Christ follower. Palestinian and Jew. And we got a chance to hear their story and how they grew up in and around Jerusalem among this conflict. Both groups are informed by massive religious movements, Judaism, Islam. Both groups are highly nationalistic. 
Both groups believe they have the rightful claim of this land. Both groups have started wars. Both groups have been victims of wars. Both groups feel that the other one, if they get left in charge, would be the worst thing that the world could ever possibly endure. And both men said that it is impossible to resolve this conflict on earth. Both men said this, it's impossible. And I just kind of made the observation. I said, well, you two kind of like each other. <laughs> you two kind of hang out. How, how are you making this work? And both men said this, Christ. Christ changed everything for us. I was like, what? Mickey said this, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things will be added to you. He says, I find it interesting that most cultures don't understand the context in which Jesus said these words. He says, most messages that I hear, this phrase is used to talk about fleeing sin, fleeing greed, fleeing sex, drugs, rock and roll, that we should flee the life of sinfulness and seek instead God's righteousness and his kingdom, and that will give us what we want. That is not at all what Jesus meant when he said these words. That got my attention. He says, Jesus said these words in the middle of a complicated and combative political context. Jesus was teaching in a Roman-occupied Israel to a bunch of Jews who believed it was their God-given right to be free. People expected Jesus to pick a side, lead the rebellion, and they would make him king. And that that would bring them peace, purpose, and prosperity. And instead, Jesus said to them, seek first the kingdom of God and a right relationship, a righteousness, a right standing relationship with him, and then peace, prosperity, and purpose will be given to you. In other words, Jesus said, your plan of seeking peace and prosperity and purpose through political and military means is destined to fail. It will not work. And he says, Jesus never compromised this message. In fact, he gives us all of these parables of the kingdom so that we wouldn't be confused about it. Jesus consistently told these parables which point to this truth that there is nothing on this earth better than knowing and loving Jesus. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Mickey, our tour guide, put an even finer point on this. He says, as Jews, we have two heroes that we're constantly debating between who we should follow. He said, the first hero is Joshua, <sighs> military leader, commander, take the land, defeat the cities. God has purposed Israel to be this shining nation for the world, and it is time to take control. So we should follow Joshua's example 
which by the way is the same line of thinking that created the massacre at Masada. Masada was Joshua in motion. He says, but we have another hero. And that hero is Daniel. Daniel in 587, when the nation of Israel has run its course and it has rejected God and it has not been the shining beacon that God wanted it to be. So God is going to send the evil and hated Babylonians as his judgment. And God says, you have to learn how to live out your faith without political power, without a position of influence. And yes, it can be done. And Daniel is going to be your example. And Daniel rises and becomes the second most important person in Babylon because he holds true to his convictions. And then Mickey said this, what we often forget is, is that Daniel didn't compromise. And in some instances, it put him in a place of influence and power. But then in other instances, it put him in the lion's den. And he seemed to be okay with either outcome because he was trying to live out his faith. He says, this is the confusion that Jews have. Fortunately for Christ followers, we don't have this confusion. We have Jesus. We follow Jesus. <clears throat> he is our hero. He is our model. And Jesus did not try to win a cultural war or wield political power. He did not align himself with Rome, nor did he try to overthrow them. And the early church followers and fathers followed this model, and it's why churches across Europe, Asia, and Africa sprang to life. Jesus loved people and presented an alternative way to live called the kingdom. And it functions in the middle of all kinds of hurt and chaos. And he did this by speaking truth and living graciously. And we are Christians, little Christ, his ambassadors on his mission to do this right now today. This is the path forward for all Christians in all places. And I wish he would have stopped right there. But then he added the phrase, is it not? Is it not? And he was inviting us into a conversation that 32 Americans sitting on the Temple Mount were not prepared to have. The last two years, have been the most contentious, and combative in the church that I have ever seen in my life. And the root cause of it isn't COVID. Stay with me, stay focused. This is so important for you to hear right now. It isn't elections, it isn't protests, it isn't racism, it isn't privilege, it's not fake news, 
It's not media biases. The core problem with the American church today is that we don't seek his kingdom. We have somehow missed Jesus' example of not playing political games for power, but intersecting people's lives with love and grace at the very place that they need it, in the very moment that they need it. And maybe, maybe we're not seeking his kingdom because we don't understand it. Maybe it's because we're too comfortable. Maybe it's because some of us have gotten addicted to influence and power and not the servant leadership of our king. Maybe somehow we think that Jesus somehow cares about which political party that we've had to compromise his message to fit into. Or maybe we want to win elections more than we want to win souls. And maybe, maybe it's because pastors like me quit teaching and reminding us about the words of Jesus. to die to self, to pick up your cross daily and follow him, to seek the lost, to love the neighbor. Maybe it's because we quit preaching that message. Maybe we forgot to tell the stories of leaving the 99 and going after the one. And maybe we did this because we weren't really sure if anyone would follow us if we did it. Or maybe, maybe we got comfortable with being liked and not just following Jesus. Maybe we thought if we preached that message, we'd lose our jobs. We'd, people would quit coming to church and oh my gosh, they'd quit giving. Maybe. People ask me, how was the trip? And I haven't yet got the nerve to tell them. I left Israel convicted. Massively convicted. When you walk in a country where only 1% of the population knows Jesus, that changes your mindset. When you know that 99% of the people that you come in contact with are destined for an eternity without Jesus, it puts into perspective just how frustrating are you going to be that you can't get the Wi-Fi code to the hotel.
And then coming home, understanding that a vast majority of the people that I interact with, and for you, maybe it's who you work with, or maybe it's who you're living with, maybe, maybe it's who you're going to school with, but a vast majority of them do not know Jesus. And it bothers me how much I have elevated my temporary earthly preferences above the mission of Jesus in my life. And then it bothers me more about how they voted and what they feel about abortion and what they think about racism or how they understand Black Lives Matter or what they think about privilege. That those issues, those are, those are more concerning and those stir in me more than the fact that I just told you that most of them are dying and going to hell. And that bothered me. Let me try to be as clear as Jesus has been with me. The mission of the Christ follower is not to make a Christian nation. If that had been Jesus's purpose, he had a perfect opportunity to do it in Jerusalem and in Israel around 33 AD, and he didn't do it. Not our mission. Our mission is not to win cultural value wars. If that had been our mission, if that had been Jesus's mission, he would have kicked out Rome. He would have changed the world and said Rome had to go, but he didn't do that either. He said, seek his kingdom. And, I, and I'm not gonna pretend to understand everything that that means. I don't. But I know in scripture, what got celebrated in the kingdom was the widow that lost the coin the shepherd that found the sheep, the father that found the son. That's what got celebrated in the kingdom. That seemed to be really, really important to the father. And he created a church to be on that mission with him and for him. Does any of this bother you like it's bothering me? I'm, I'm different because of this summer. And while I'm scared to death of the implications of this, I'm scared more to not do it. This upward season I know we like to celebrate the wins and the victories and all that stuff. I, I want to peel back the curtain a little bit. This upward season, I get a phone call from a friend that I've known a long time. Has been an upward patron for a long time. He was incredibly upset, incredibly angry. The assistant coach that we placed his child on had a political banner on their social media page that he fundamentally disagreed with and could not understand how we could ever put an assistant coach who believed in this particular 
uh, social issue, how we could ever put that individual as an assistant coach to represent our church and to represent our league. And on top of that, he did not want to have anything to do with this individual. We wanted his child removed from that team, put on another team. And that I had somehow compromised Jesus and I'd compromised the mission of the church by doing this and couldn't believe that I was even still the pastor at Western Hills. And I said, have you had a conversation with this assistant coach to know where they are in their faith walk? Well, no. You haven't even had a conversation? No. So you don't, you don't know where they're at? No. You just know that they be politically believe this, and since they believe that, they can't, like, that, that's, that's your, I'm just trying to figure out your, your stream of logic here. I was like, right. I said, I don't think I'm the one that's lost the plot. I, I don't think I'm the one that's lost here. I said, first of all, you don't know this individual, and I do. I said, but let's just take your, let's just take your assumption, even though it may be wrong, that they don't know Jesus, and they're an assistant coach. Let's just take that assumption, Okay. <laughs> He goes, yeah, let's take that. How many people would you think would leave Upward if they found out that was true? Upward is supposed to be a place for the kids. I went, oh, oh no. You see, that's, let's start there. That's not why we do Upward. <laughs> that's not, no, 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 no. You, you got that all wrong. I said, do you know what's gonna happen with that assistant coach over the next 10 weeks? What? I said, no, 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 you've, you've done upward. What, what's gonna happen over the next 10 weeks with that assistant coach? How many times is that lost assistant coach gonna hear the gospel of Jesus Christ through devotions that are being led for their team? At least 10 of them. If, if, if I told you you had 10 conversations with a lost person to talk about Christ, would you take it? On top of that, the devotions aren't even the best part of this. The devotions aren't even the best part of this gig. We stack the teams. We make sure that every team has at least a Christ-following coach or an assistant coach, and we make sure that every team has multiple Christ-following families on it. You wanna know why? So that that lost person will find out that Christ followers don't have two heads and live on Mars. That's why. So that they can have meaningful interactions with people who love Jesus. They're going to get to hear the story of Jesus for 10 weeks. They're going to get to interact with people who love Jesus for 10 weeks. And they're going to be, they're going to have to put their lives, just compare them right there with another Christ followers lives. And hopefully, hopefully there's enough Christ followers who love Jesus enough to love her. I'm not the one who's lost and missing the plot. You are. You're missing the plot. It's your mission to be a part of this, not to condemn her before you've even had a conversation with her. Does it even phase you that she may be lost and going to hell? Does that, even, does that even phase you? Or are you so upset that she votes a certain way that you can't see past her? That doesn't sound like that's her problem. It sounds like it's yours.
moving forward for me, I want to be inconvenienced by lost people. I I want to be inconvenienced by lost people. I want my heart to grow to the place to where I love them more than I do my preferences. I want, I want our church to be a place to where we're more concerned about people's souls than their voting records. I want us to be good with being inconvenienced by people. I want the opportunity to build relationships with those who are far from Christ because I want the opportunity to invite them and to introduce them to the good and beautiful Jesus. And my preferences can't, can't be more important than that. Can't be. So that is how my trip to Israel is. (laughs) The question that remains to be asked is, where are you? If you're a Christ follower and you've called Western Hills home for a long time, I want you to know up front, changes are coming. We have to be more concerned about lost people than we've ever been in our lives. We have to be. And I'll no longer apologize for that. Every week we say a blessing. I know, bummer way to end a message. Um, Every week we say a blessing, and we're going to do that again this week, but this week we're going to do it a little differently because you are not going to say the blessing. You're going to listen to it. You're going to listen to the words. So stand with me. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do our blessing. Father, forgive me. Forgive us for being distracted from what matters. Father, I do thank you for ambushing me, although it wasn't fair. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad you did. But Father, I, I so desperately want your heart. I so desperately want to seek your kingdom and understand what that means living in a world like we live in. And I pray this for our church. Amen. Amen. Listen to the words of the blessing. In Christ, you go nowhere 
alone. Wherever you go, God is there. And wherever you are, God can work through you. He gives purpose to you being there. And Christ, who dwells in you, has something, something to do through you where you are. Now believe this and go in his grace and his love and his power. And that is what it means to go be the church. Let's go be the church.